0: Blessed. Who is blessed today? I feel like I was just blessed by our worship team a little bit, right? But who here is willing to say that they are blessed? Um, All right. Got some hands going up. You know, in the Bible too, the word blessed can also be easily translated happy. Happy for what God has done for you. Happy for what God has done in you, through you. These are all blessings. But there's more. Anybody here have a job? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that can be a blessing. All right. Maybe you can relate to these words from Deuteronomy chapter 2. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. How about God's mercy? Anybody here ever mess up? Need to go to God in prayer? Seek forgiveness, seek his mercy. Psalm 28 Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Or maybe somebody recently has had a chance to help somebody else. You know, there is blessing in joining with God to do his work in helping others. Anybody here helping others? Been blessed that way? Psalm 41. How blessed is he who considers the helpless? The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. Another way that we can understand blessing is this. It means to be fully satisfied regardless of circumstances. Now, the second half of that definition is more difficult to absorb, but it means to be fully satisfied. Listen to the words of our Savior from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Our scripture for today, we're going to look at the second half of Psalm 2 and the punctuation of Psalm 2. That the highlight of it is blessing, but not just any blessing. The greatest blessing ever to be conceived, ever to be offered, and ever to be received ever waits for us at the end of Psalm 2. And all the hard work that we're going to do today examining this text is for the purpose of, of more fully appreciating the necessity and the scope of this blessing that God has for us. Does blessing sound good? Amen. Uh, well, let's pray and then we'll dig into Psalm 2. Lord, we are here and we are, we are gathered around your word. And our prayer, God, is that the truth that you have preserved for us in these words, that you have protected through time, that the truth that you have in these words would, would be what comes through today, would be what we absorb, what we learn and what we feel. So, Lord, be active in the power of your Holy Spirit to interpret, to clarify where I may not be so, so that you can be honored and that we could all come to a place where we're in more in admiration of you. I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, last November, when I was with you last, we looked at Psalm 2, the first half, and I want to recap for you just a couple of the key themes that we took out so that we can further dive into the second half of our psalm. The first thing we talked about was the title. The title of Psalm 2 is the reign of the Lord's anointed. When we see the word anointed, that's the word Messiah, that's the word Christ. And we agreed, yes, that when we hear the words Messiah, we hear the words Christ, we think Jesus. So Psalm 2 is definitely about Jesus. But I also made the point that this psalm was written 1,000 years before Jesus was born. And so I said, hey, we need to look, and I think there's a lot of validity in examining Psalm 2 in the context in which it was written 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And what was the premise? The premise of Psalm 2 was simply this. God had established a kingdom, and he had stalled a king over this kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And the important lesson we drew out, and this is the part I really want you to key in on, We looked at the fact that God had spoken to Abraham thousands of years before. He had made promises to Moses. And then over the course of time, as God was working, he established the kingdom that he had promised them that he would. He followed through on what he said he would do. God is in control of, and he is directing the unfolding story of this world. Take comfort in that. That's what he did. And then when we begin Psalm 2, we have the premise of this beautifully promised, established kingdom. But in the very first verse, we see that people are rebelling. They're already rebelling against God-installed king, the king of Israel at that time. So let's take a look. Psalm 2 from verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel. Together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The whole world is now in an organized rebellion against God's anointed king. The whole world. And God responds. God refers the problem of this rebellion to the king that he installed. From verse four. God says, He who sits on the, in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his wrath, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God responds to the rebellion. And what we see, that to further add to our understanding of how God sees through the things that he decrees, we saw that God promised the kingdom would happen. He waited, he established it a thousand years before the reign of Christ. But in establishing that kingdom a thousand years before Jesus, that kingdom itself points to and paints a picture of the reality that we live in right now as Christians with Christ as our king. That kingdom, a thousand years ago, pointed to and painted the picture of. There were remarkable parallels to this, if you remember. So I'm going to read a summary, and in this summary statement of Psalm 2, I'm going to make a few points about how this summary statement is true both of when David ruled and his heirs ruled Israel a thousand years before Christ and how it's true of us right now. It goes like this. God has established a kingdom... Through the work. Now, the work that David had to do was in um, uh, defeating the enemies that were surrounding him. He had the work to do. Jesus' work was defeating sin and death by dying and resurrecting from the dead. The work of his anointed one, or Messiah, who serves as king over a specific people. David is king over the Israelites. Jesus is king over his church. Why? And look, Jesus is king over everything, but specifically in the role that he is our king, we are willingly, gladly submitting to his rule, and we are to now act as a nation of priests to bring the rule of God, which is to say the kingdom of God. So you may not know this, but God established the nation of Israel a thousand years before Christ so that they could minister to the world. And now we are called out as God's church to be ministers to our world, to the ends of the earth, so that all can be blessed. It's remarkable, isn't it? And this here, this is your God weaving, working through the centuries. He said it to Abraham. He said it to Moses. He established a kingdom. That kingdom pointed to Jesus, the reality that we live in now. And this is what I want us to really pick up absolutely that absolutely every time no question what god decrees will come about Amen. absolutely um do you ever predict something maybe you predict a a, a a political race or something or maybe a sports game maybe an underdog sports people they love to predict stuff And when they're right, oh, you're going to hear about it, right? Uh, Maybe you have a relative, you're talking hockey, uh, Bruins in five, and then they make the declaration, and everybody kind of rolls their eyeballs, and then the thing happens, Bruins win in five, and then, of course, you're going to hear about that for the next five Thanksgivings around the table, right? Thanks for that. Or uh, I used to have a more traditional office job in sales, and maybe the sale falls through. I'm kind of in a bad mood. I... Take the lead, and I crunch it up into a ball of paper, and I, I spin around and I eye a garbage can, spin on my office chair and line up the shot. Uh, but but my, my buddy in the cubicle next to me has seen this before, so he takes the liberty of kind of calling out short. It's going to be short. I kind of I kind of bristle a little bit, and I was like no 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 swish. And then in my imaginary story, just because it's me shooting, goes right into the basket, doesn't touch any of the sides. Now, before we finish at our blessing at the end of Psalm 2 today, we are going to have to deal with some pretty difficult concepts in our psalm, some pretty challenging words from God. And to the extent that we are willing to acknowledge that God has called it, God has decreed it, to that extent is that we will be able to appreciate this tremendous blessing. So here we are. We're going to... Dive into the second half of our psalm, and God has responded to the rebellion, and he has responded, but now, interestingly, the anointed one is going to speak. Our Messiah, our anointed one, speaks, and he says this, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now, I've been maintaining that interpreting Psalm 2 in its immediate historical context, in the context of 1,000 years before Jesus' birth, is a valid approach. But this text here, this is an absolute pivot in this regard. Because what do you do with that statement? The Lord's anointed? like, Like, King David or one of his heirs is recalling a time when God spoke to him and said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. How do you handle that? Well, that this idea of the begotten son of God is absolutely crucial as we continue in our Psalms. We really need to dig into what this means. What are we talking about, the begotten son of God? And how could possibly a David, Davidic king say that? That sounds like something only Jesus should be able to say. All right. So we'll start here. I want to take you back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a portion in the Bible for those of you who study the different theological concepts. Second Samuel chapter 7 is when God is delivering what we call the Davidic covenant. So God is speaking to King David, and he's making promises to him. He's telling him what he's going to do through him, how he's going to establish his kingdom. And he makes a reference. He speaks to what would become the next king of Israel, David's immediate heir, King Solomon. And in speaking about King Solomon, God said something about the special relationship he wants to have between himself and the kings of Israel. 2 Samuel chapter seven says this. God says, I will be a father to him, that's Solomon, and he will be a son to me. So God did say that earthly kings would be a son to him. But how does that work? How does that work? I want to draw out for you three principles of sonship, this idea of the Son of God, three from the biblical text and how we can apply them in our song. And I'm maybe thinking you can help me get started here. Now, um, I'm going to ask a question. If this is true of you, just raise your hand. Don't be afraid. There's going to be a smaller number raising their hands. And whenever it's not everybody, everybody kind of freaks out, but it's okay. Are you ready? The question is this, how many of you are in the same line of work, the same vocation as mom or dad? Anybody? All right, so look around. Not a lot of people. That's what I expected absolutely did happen because no, that is really not part of our culture of our society. It doesn't happen all that much anymore. But it would be hard for me to overemphasize how much this idea would have been woven into the very fabric of the culture in Jesus' time. There's an instance in Matthew 13 where Jesus is called by a group of people. They call him the carpenter's son. Now, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary. Joseph had nothing to do with the biological conception of Jesus Christ, and yet they're calling him the carpenter's son. Now, we read that, and we can make some conclusions, and we can say, well, you know, this is what's going on here. Those people thought he was Joseph's son because Mary was mommy, Joseph was daddy, Joseph was a carpenter, and they just thought that. Well, I'm here to tell you, based upon my study of the history in Psalm 2, it's far, far more likely that they called him the carpenter's son because Jesus' dad was a carpenter. That's what he did. That was his job. And as was dad, so is son a carpenter. Now, we kind of have this idea of sonship these days. I don't think this is too off base from what we kind of come to understand. Uh, My dad is a trial attorney. He retired a year and a half or so ago, and I have two siblings, so there's three of us total. And I think uh, my sister, my brother, and I can all tell you that at some point growing up, my dad, you know, did the whole, hey, son, you know, what do you say? Get you into an Ivy League school, maybe. Send you out east. Maybe you can be a lawyer. Nothing too aggressive, you know? And uh, three children, three tries, three strikes, you're out. Sorry, Dad. (laughs) None of us are lawyers. But I have these memories. I have a friend who I, I was with almost constantly in the summertime. My parents have a place in central Wisconsin. You've probably heard me talk about it before. And my, par- my, uh, my parents kept that place, and my dad would work in the city during the week, and in the summer months, he would make the trip up and try to have a relaxing weekend at his cottage. And, of course, my buddy and I were joined at the hips, and I, I have this memory of us sitting on the front porch, the sun is shining. My dad's getting up to his cottage, and he's relaxing. And, you know, there's a couple boats on the end of the pier, all filled with gas. There's the luxury sedan in the garage. There's the membership to the golf course, you know, golf club. And my, and my friend kind of sitting there looking around. Hey, Mr. Glenn, would, would you tell me about the lawyer thing again? What is that all about? Do you mind? And we'd sit there, and my dad would kind of talk about his job and... As we are here today, my friend is living in the city of Chicago, and he is a practicing attorney. And so what happens? Whenever we're all together, my dad and my friend and I, I always grab my friend around, I bring him to my dad, I'm like, look, dad, the son you never had, here he is, you did it. Now, when we say of our anointed one that he is a son of God, this is one way in which we're saying it. Part of this sentiment in Psalm 2 is that this is a son by vocation. God is the king over everything. And the king of Israel would serve as a king to Israel as a son. Jesus had a couple testy conversations with the people of his time. Sometimes they were the religious leaders, sometimes other groups of people. And there was one There's one incident that Jesus had when he encountered a group of people. He said something that from the very... Young, when I first read it, I always thought, wow. So at one point, he calls this group of people, he goes, you are of your father, the devil. And I always just like shook my head at that and thought, dang, Jesus, like, what are you doing there? Like, I don't know, it just always astounded me that he said that. But here's a a real question, why would he say that? Why would Jesus call a group of people sons of the devil, Well, in this particular conversation that Jesus had with these people, they had made the claim. They were a group of Jewish people, the Bible says in John chapter 8. They had made the claim, this claim, Abraham is our father. Now, in doing that, we have to get the obvious right out of the way because Abraham has long been dead. There's no way Abraham is daddy. That's not what they mean, talking about something else. So Jesus responds to their claim. That group of people, Jewish people, he says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Jesus is saying, yeah, I know you're the biological descendants of Abraham, but Abraham isn't your father in that sense at all. Because if Abraham were your father, you'd be doing the things Abraham did. So as Jesus is speaking to these people, he, he solidifies two facts about what they're trying to do in that moment. They were trying to kill him and they were spreading lies about him. You were trying to kill me. You were trying to spread lies about you. And you see, Abraham wasn't a murderer. Do you see that? And Abraham wasn't a liar. Yeah, he was human. He told a few fibs here and there. Some of them had some consequences. But he wasn't a liar. He wasn't actively seek to muddy and, and distort the work of God. So Jesus says, oh, you have a father, all right. But it's not Abraham. After establishing the intention after establishing their intention to kill him, after establishing their intention to lie to him, that is when Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. So our king of Israel that we see in Psalm 2, as the king, as a son in that sense, he should be doing as the higher king does. He is a son by action. He is a son by action. God is at work for peace, righteousness, justice in heaven. And the king of Israel should do the same for Israel as a son of God. One more example I want you to see, and maybe one of the more popular sons of God verses in the New Testament, uh, because I really want you to hear D.A. Carson's summary of it. Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. These words do not tell us how to become one of Jesus' disciples. Rather, they presuppose that God is the supreme peacemaker with the result that those who make peace show themselves to be, at least on that axis, members of God's peacemaking clan, as it were. Now, I told you that I'd show you three traits of sonship that we could apply to our king here in Psalm 2. We've looked at vocation, and we've looked at action. There's gonna be one more, but I wanna hold off on that one and let it come out as the psalm itself unfolds. Let's go back to Psalm 2. We'll repeat seven and then move on. The anointed one says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shall shatter them like earthenware and full stop. What? Our anointed king here, our king is remembering a point of time in history where God said, I will surely give the nations of your inheritance the very ends of your earth as your possession. Bible friends of mine, I want you to pause for a minute when I want to ask you a very serious question. Did David or any of his Earthly heirs ever take possession of the entire earth? No. He did not. Did he did he have all of the nations as, as an inheritance? No. He didn't do it. But God said, I will surely. And there's another problem here. Even if Israel were to rule the whole world again someday, church, there's still a problem. How would we know that this person is a direct descendant of David? In A.D. 70, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and along with it were lost all of the genealogical records of Israel. Since then, it has not been possible to identify the descendants of David. Messiah must be born prior to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Well, the pivot in our interpretation of Psalm 2 has just been confirmed. Confirmed. Neither David nor any of his descendants did what the Lord's anointed has said will happen. There's no nations as inheritance. The very ends of his earth as a possession. New Hope Church, God is calling his shot here. God is calling his shot. He said this will surely happen. It hasn't happened yet. That can only mean one thing, that it certainly will but not through a Davidic king of Israel like that, but through the ultimate Messiah, before the ultimate one. Not through a son of God, but through the son of God. Jesus Christ is the only son of God in any sense that can fill the decree of God in Psalm 2, verse 8. He is the only one who can do it. In the uh, New American Standard Bible Translation. I did a little word study search just for fun. And I took the exact phrase, Son of God, and I looked at every single time the exact phrase, Son of God, was used in the four gospel accounts. We have four historical accounts of Jesus' lives. In those accounts, 15 times we see Jesus being ascribed or told that he is the Son of God. Now, interestingly, Jesus never says this about himself, but when people tell him he is the Son of God, he never corrects them. It's like, yeah, that's me. Now, of those 15 times that Jesus is told he is the Son of God, eight, more than half of them are spoken by either Satan or his demons. And why is that? Well, who's going to know better the authority? that the Son of God carries than a being that had been in eternity with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is just no raggedy rabbi making his way through the J- Jewish countryside, people. Demons come across Jesus. What do, you, what do you want with us, Son of God? They're terrified of him because they know that he carries the power and the authority of the King over all things. See, in that culture, church, a dignitary son was deemed equal in stature and privilege with his father. The same deference demanded by a king was afforded to his adult son. The son was, after all, of the very same essence as his father, heir to all the father's rights and privileges, and therefore equal in every significant regard. So when Jesus was called the son of God, It was understood categorically by all as a title of deity, making him equal with God and more significantly of the same essence as the Father. That is precisely why the Jewish leaders regarded the title Son of God as high blasphemy. And this is the third way that Jesus embodies the Son of God as vocation and by action and by essence he is the essence of god the father he is of the same stuff that's what the word begotten means don't be confused by that when we call jesus the begotten son of god we are not referring to his origin we we are referring to his substance jesus is a son by essence jesus said plainly i and the father are one Uh, Biblical scholars, theologians, generally speaking, agree upon the event that began Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus had a relative named John who had his own ministry. He was out in the countryside, and his ministry was of repentance and baptism. Uh, And why the repenting, John? Well, John would have told you because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John is out in the countryside baptizing people in the Jordan River, and Jesus goes out to see him. To meet him. And he wants to be baptized as well. Now, John at first refuses. He he, he is not comfortable with that because Jesus needs no repenting, okay? But Jesus insists, said, No, John, I, I need you. I want you to baptize me. So John takes Jesus, walks him into the cool water of the Jordan River, and we have to assume, you know, held him, and then dipped him into the Jordan River. And as John pulls Jesus out of the river, something amazing happens. As Jesus is rising up out of this river, God the Father pulls back the curtain between heaven and earth, just a little bit, just a little bit. And when he pulls that back, that curtain of space, the glory of God just explodes onto the scene. Light just fills the area. Jesus comes up out of the water underneath the brilliant light of the glory of God and God the Father makes the choice to speak into space and into time. And what does he say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Let's listen. Ask of me. And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back and this is what he is going to do. God has decreed it. We saw it. I will surely. I will tell of the decree. I will surely. The risen king has been declared to be in the power, the son of God. Romans 1 verse 4. The risen king. All authority. All authority in heaven and on earth is now his. Matthew 28. He is the living, begotten Son of God, and he will see the decrees of God fulfilled. It's boldly and frequently procra- proclaimed in Scripture. This is going to happen. This is real. These are not fairy tales. Now, and instead of um, showing you um, a list of Bible verses that describe this second coming of Jesus Christ, I instead want to take my cue from Psalm 2 itself and and speak to you the first words of verse 10. Now then, now then, hear this warning. Think this through. Understand who this king is, the title that he bears and the power that he wields. He's coming back to end the rebellion that is set up against him. Now, preparing for this message, I came across a YouTube video. Of, it was a Jewish author and a Christian theologian, and that's always kind of fun to watch these guys talk about stuff. And when they came upon the idea of uh, Jesus being the Messiah, the Jewish person, not a Christian, said something along these lines. Well, uh, see, to, to a Jew... Um, uh, the Messiah is someone who comes at the end of things with justice and with wrath and to set things right. And I'm like watching this, making notes on my thing. I was like, well, you got that right. (laughs) He certainly is. But the, the, the Jewish author just couldn't see, would refuse to see all the references in the Bible to how Jesus would also be a servant, humble, beaten, killed, and raised again. He just couldn't come to grips with that. All he could see was the coming of a powerful king. Are you tracking? That's all he saw. And look, we have this beautiful advantage of being on this side of the cross. We're on this side of it. We know it happened. It's a historical event. We can go back and see what Jesus decreed before it happened. Thousands of years before it happened. Hundreds of years before it happened. God is saying, this is where he's gonna be born. These are the kind of things that he's going to teach. These are the people he's going to free. This is the kind of miracles he's going to perform. Oh, yeah, he's going to be pierced. He's going to die. He's going to ride into his city on a foal of a donkey. He's going to be striped. He's going to rise again. He's going to be a king. All of these things were told about Jesus thousands and hundreds of years before it happened. We have the added luxury of knowing that when God said something is going to go down, you can count on it. Now, we are so in love with the idea of Jesus saving us, and we should be. We should be. But you see, this vision of Jesus crushing rebellion, setting things in order, is what we are being saved from. It's the other half of the story. If we're shy about talking about Jesus as this conquering king, what are we saved from? Boredom? Inconvenience? How much weightier is your salvation in Jesus Christ when you clarify the picture of the wrath and and the restructuring that is going to come? Um. In verse 9, I want to point something out. Both the concepts of iron and shattering, both of those concepts convey a poetic imagery, if you you will, of permanence. The reason that his rod is made of iron because it's permanent. The the shattering of earthenware, that is a, a, a word picture, if you will, of something permanent. In other words, there is no putting this back together. Jesus is coming back to break The rebellion, any and all rebellion that stands against him. He has said he's going to do it. If you're curious about how this plays out specifically, uh, I would encourage you to go read Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, and we'll deliver some frightening details for you. Alistair Begg uh, is a pastor and theologian. I I listened to and watched a sermon he gave on Psalm 2 in preparing for today. And I, I'm really starting to like this guy. He's, I have like a rank of pastors I like to listen to outside of New Hope, and he's rising in my ranks. I really like him. Um, he's this Scottish guy, pulls no punches, and he's speaking about the reality of this, this reality. And he looks at his congregation, and his Scottish brogue pauses and gathers himself and just says this. If I can't cajole you into the kingdom... Let me terrify you. Because you see, that is an equally valid biblical approach. All right, I need to lighten the mood a little bit. I'm going to tell you a story that I think is hilarious. And um, I, did, I, I know that is because I called my wife earlier this week and said, hey, should I tell this story this weekend? And I had a hard time getting through it without cracking up. Now, you may not think it's funny, but... I'm going to let it rip anyway, and we'll lighten the mood, and then we'll move on. Uh, Freshman year of college, I went to University of Iowa, and University of Iowa Big Ten School, uh, Iowa River, uh, that's what they call it, runs right through the campus. And on one side of the campus is predominantly all the athletic things that you need, the stadiums, the practice fields, all that stuff. And on the other side is the academic, mostly all the academic buildings. Now, just by lot, by chance, I got placed in a dorm on the athletic side of the river. So my freshman year, I was in a dorm and interacting with a lot of student-athletes. And I, I, I met a girl on the other side, by the way, my wife and I weren't dating yet, so everybody just calm down, don't throw any, she's sitting right here, she knows, anyway. So I met this girl from across the dorm, and we became friends, and she was a field hockey player, I believe, and over the course of being friends, um, she needed help with math or something, I was pretty good at math, so I started tutoring her in math, and the college kids are already starting to giggle, maybe thinking about where this is going, and um, So we became friends, just friends, really. And uh, uh, she had family, but her family was on the East Coast. She didn't have a lot of money. She couldn't travel home for Thanksgiving, so I invited her home. She came to my parents' house in Chicago. We had Thanksgiving. We went back to school. Little did I know that, like, the star of the football team thought that that was his girlfriend. Whoops. I didn't know that. So I, I had all these experiences. I come back to school, and people are talking about, hey, what do you want to go do? There's a volleyball tournament over there. And I'd be like, oh, sounds great. And some would be like, hey, uh, I think that dude might show up. So I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to go back to my dorm play the piano. Or pretty much anything that I did over the next couple of weeks when I came home from Thanksgiving break, I had to take into account the fact that somebody that was bigger, faster, stronger, was ready to beat me up at anywhere I went. And let me tell you something, when you're facing the threat of real physical violence, it changes what you do. (laughs) You'll gladly choose not to go there when you know that's where your life might end. You'll go over here. Now, and there's this prevailing sadness in our society that got us somehow aloof or apathetic in some way to the wickedness of this world. I mean, we, we we had a moment of silence for Memorial Day. Why do we even have to do that? Because we start wars. That is wickedness. That is not God's design. He is not aloof to the wickedness of the world. His wrath against all the wickedness of this world is being stored up. Maybe you've heard that term before. It's true. It's being stored up. The difference is that God is just more patient than any of us. He's waiting. He's got more people that he needs to save. We have more people that we need to declare the gospel to. Maybe he's going to start a church in Hazlitt. Maybe it's going to grow, and maybe they'll need to move. He's doing things. He's acting. This should compel us. And isn't it going to be great? When the rebellion is broken, like I'm on team Jesus, all right? We'll get to that part later. I'm not really afraid of this. I don't have to be. It's just going to be, oh, thank goodness. And how do we respond to him? How do we respond? And as your worship pastor, maybe my favorite moment for my whole message right now is the next very word in our psalm is we worship him. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. I want to point out just a very simple thing about the, the worship language that we have in there. It's really profound. When you see that word worship in verse 11, that conveys the idea of service. We are to serve. That's an action. It's something tangible. Act, worship, serve the Lord with, with reverence. Now, do homage depending on the translation of your Bible, that might actually be translated kiss the son because it's an entirely different concept. That's the idea of affection and submission. That literally means kiss. Worship is a combination of affection and action. And we get to it. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. How blessed, how blessed because you see when you take refuge in this king you find your only refuge from this king there is refuge in Jesus Christ there is no stored wrath for you as a son or a daughter of God he's coming back God said he's going to do it we know that only Jesus can do it and you find your refuge from him in him and be happy about it. It says blessed, happy. It doesn't say how safe are those, how contented, how religious. It doesn't say any of those things. The words on this in the psalm are screaming emotion. Rejoice, be happy, because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Refuge in the King brings eternal life. I'd like to pause and thank Pastor Mark for uh, taking time to set up my message today by preaching on heaven last week. Um, if you have not heard it, Pastor Mark did a, a exposition on what the Bible has to say about heaven last week. Go check it out. That is the blessing, the eternal blessing reward of finding refuge in Jesus Christ and. One or two more things. Whatever um, breaking, whatever shattering might have been stored up because of the wicked things we have been involved in. Listen, whatever breaking or shattering might have been stored up for all the wickedness that we were involved in as a son and daughter of God, Jesus has already absorbed it. He's already taken it. He has declared us justified, justified. Justified means not guilty, innocent. Does God bring wrath on the innocent? No, the answer is no. Does God bring wrath on those declared not guilty? No, we have nothing to fear when we are in Christ. There is joy, there is blessing. We believe Jesus is crucified, resurrected son of God. We see the greatest blessing ever conceived of, ever offered, refuge in the king. There is a, something I see sometimes on the TV or news. I follow the news. It's kind of depressing, but I do it anyway because I like to stay in touch with things. And there's something that happens sometimes that as a Christian person I resonate with. That always gets me. And it's when there's a verdict that's going to be read. Maybe there's been a trial. Maybe there's a celebrity or politician or somebody. Or somebody's facing some very real consequences for their action. And then sometimes the judge lets the camera in the courtroom. And so you get this scene where the jury has reached its verdict, and they put the verdict in an envelope, and they deliver it to the judge. And the judge is about to read the verdict, and the accused... The accused stands, and who stands next to the accused? The lawyer, the attorney stands there, and then you have the prosecutors on the other side. We've seen this story before. The judge unseals the envelope, and there's that moment of tension. You can see the weight on the accused' shoulders. Just like, I'm about, the verdict is about to be read. And this is the part that gets me. When the judge pulls out the envelope, he unfolds it, not guilty. That, oh, man. And then what does the not guilty person often do? I love this part. Oh, thank you. Not guilty, church. We have refuge in the king. Jesus has gotten us off of his wrath. It's coming, but we don't have to fear it. We're guilty, blessed, free, And I'm eager to continue this journey of declaring this gospel to whoever will listen for his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that we had an opportunity to dig into your word and some difficult things, some words that you have spoken, but God, um, as a collective community of faith, we... um, uh, confess to you that we believe that you will do the things that you have promised to do. And therefore, we have all the assurance we need that when we find our refuge in you, we have nothing to fear. So I pray that for every brother and sister in Christ here today, that they would walk out of here feeling blessed, happy, joyful. And God, for those of us here who may not be, in, in, in a way that's appropriate for them, Maybe you need to terrify them into seeking you. So God, may, may you be honored and exalted in this place among these people as you desire. Uh, thank you for our time together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a great weekend, church.